to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog owners. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a certified professional dog trainer, and I hope to give you a fresh outlook on your dog's behavior and practical dog training advice. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I have a pretty spectacular guest with me tonight. So I want to just give you a little backstory before I let her introduce herself. So um, recently I was at the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center in Divide, Colorado. And I'd been there a couple of times, but I went for a second visit. And let me tell you guys, this place is freaking incredible. Um, And our guest tonight was our tour guide and her passion is just freaking contagious. So, you know, I went out on a a limb. I was like, I'm just going to ask her to be on the podcast and see what she says. And thankfully she accepted my invitation and you all get to benefit from her knowledge in this conversation. So do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for, for all of the listeners? Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm really excited to be here, too. Uh, I hope you enjoy what I have to say. My name is Rebecca Burkhalter. I go by Becca Sue, though, uh, and I've been working at the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center for a, about about a year and a half now um, as a tour guide and photographer and activist and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So that's me. I got my bachelor's of science at uh, UNT, the University of North Texas, go Denton, you know, <laughs> um, in ecology. So, you know, I'm not a researcher. I'm coming to this conversation as a scientific minded person. Um, I'd like to call myself an ecologist. That might be a stretch. I think maybe the proper term is probably activist. Um, so, yeah. Very cool. Okay. So you're, are you originally from Texas then? I am actually, I'm from Irving, Texas, which happens to be the most diverse zip code in America. You can look that up. You can fact check me there. It's true. Very cool. Okay. So um, when you were looking for jobs, was Colorado top on your list? Like, did you look at lots of different places? Okay. So absolutely not. Um, I, (laughs) (laughs) to be honest with you, I grew up in the middle of DFW the mega metroplex, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. I mean, Irving is smack dab in the middle. And I grew up with what I call concrete sickness. So it's, yeah, you're nodding your head. Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of people listening also know what that is. I made it up, but, uh, concrete sickness is where your soul is starting to get crushed because you can't see a tree. Right. So long story short, I came to Colorado and I had never been on a mountain before ever in my life ever. And I started to have a panic attack because, or I thought I was having a panic attack. There's the altitude. So I get out of the car. I'm like, we got to stop going uphill. I'm going to die. Uh, so I jump out and I just have this spiritual experience. I mean, I have no idea where we were or anything, but I just thought, you know what, I've got to make a change. And then I saw that billboard that says wolf tours, right? <laughs> have you seen the billboard? Yeah. Yep. With Kiara's face on it. She's passed away now makes me a little sad every time I see that billboard now. But anyway, I said, hey, I could get wolf tours. Um, So (laughs) I started showing up and I learned the gate code. So eventually they had to stop kicking me out. (laughs) And (laughs) I know that's an exaggeration, but I I did volunteer for about four months. And then um, the office position actually um, came about and, and they, I guess they have decided I'm worth keeping around. So worked out for me. That is amazing. Okay. So for everyone listening who isn't familiar, right, with the center, can you kind of just give like the general explanation of like what it is? Because I think that there's, 
there's, there's a lot of variation in like quote unquote wolf centers. Right. And I think that you guys are a little unique. So do you want to kind of just speak to like this, uh, the specificity of the wolf and wildlife center? Yeah, absolutely. So there are several wolf sanctuaries in Colorado as well as Texas. Um, but the wolf centers, and I've, I've been to a lot of wolf sanctuaries. I've been obsessed with wolves for a long time. And when I first walked into the wolf center, you know, I, I knew that it was different. Uh, so what I tell people when they ask me that question is, well, we are all about education, conservation, preservation, right? So as you well know, it is a really fun place. We do tours and we do interactions, which means that people of the public can pay some money and go into those enclosures with those wolves. Um, but that's not all we do, right? So we also do things like this podcast here. To, anytime I hear someone say, do you want to come talk to this group of people? I say, yes, let's do it, you know? <laughs> And the Wolf Center has always supported that sort of thing. Um, so outreach is a big difference between us and other wolf sanctuaries that I've, and other sanctuaries in general that I've been to. The other thing is that we're AZA certified, right? So that's the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. That is a big deal. So I know you've probably heard a lot of this on the tour since you've already taken the tour. So just uh, random side. So my husband used to work at the Denver Zoo and I know lots of people that work at the Denver Zoo and I know how hard they have worked to get yeah. their accreditation. So like hearing that you guys were certified was just mind blowing yeah. because it is not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. It's very, it's a very prestigious honor um, that we uphold, right? And it's very serious. It's not just the care of the animals, which is of course, number one thing the AZA does is that, you know, the animals are, are first. But it also depends on like landscaping and I don't know what hours you're open and things like that. You know, there's things that I don't understand above my head that I'm just trying to scramble to to keep that certification because it is so prestigious and it's so unusual that we have it. Uh, we are the only sanctuary in Colorado with that certification, the AZA, uh, and one of only 15 in the United States. So it makes us the gold standard in Colorado. Uh, it means that our animals are well taken care of and that we that we do this outreach. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So, um, I, I want to speak just a little bit about, um, the setup, right. And like how all the, the animals are housed, because I think people have this image in their mind of like just this big open space and all these wolves are together. And that is not how it's, that's not what it's like in reality. So do you want to speak to that just a little bit about like how the wolves are housed, um, and how they're not all together? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I also understand that you want to know a little bit about how we get them together, yes. right? Yeah. So um, we try and pair our animals, male, female, as young as possible, right? But we don't make that decision. They make that decision. And wolves can be extremely competitive with each other. I mean, in the wild, they are, you know, constantly fighting for resources. They live incredibly competitive lives. So for example, we have a mother-daughter that live a couple enclosures away from each other. I'll explain how we have it set up in a moment. Their names are Tala and Coda. You would think that they got along because they're family, but actually because they're separated now, they view each other as competition. That's another breeding female. So if, if Tala gets out of her enclosure, which basically never ever happens, or if she gets away from somebody on a leash, something like that, they always say, go look at Coda because she's trying to go kill Coda. I mean, that's how it is, right? So that is why we have it housed how we have because of this competitive nature of wolves and the, the ability to seriously injure or kill each other, right? So that's why we keep them in, in pairs. So let me kind of explain that ideology. So 
if we had three wolves in one wolf enclosure, that would mean that the two of them are alphas and there would be one that would be below, right? So the alphas would eat first and then that second one would eat second and be the scapegoat for whatever tension. In the wild, wolves um, have giant home ranges, right? So an Arctic wolf can have a home range of a thousand square miles, which is incredible. Uh, we have about 35 acres. <laughs> so in the wild, right, they're able to get away from each other. Or if, you know, the group really doesn't like one of the wolves, that wolf, usually called the Omega, can break off and go away. Here, they have, you know, one to three acre enclosures. We just don't have the space to deal with the tension safely. Right. Yeah, because they it's are so space the tensions can't diffuse on their own, like they would yeah. like in the wild, right? Exactly. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So space and tension are the answer for that. We have 14 gray wolves at the center and they have decided who they want to be with. Um, I want to talk about Coda for just a second. If y'all ever come to the Wolf Center, you'll, you'll see these wolves. Um, to me, they feel kind of like family or coworkers, right? So Coda is one of the wolves that we have there. She lost two mates within like six months of each other. Devastating to her. She was with her first mate for most of her life. That mate died. She remated, which was sort of a miracle. And then that mate died within six months. So then she, she became very depressed. She didn't want to talk to us. She was on the other side of the enclosure. And then Amarok came, our little Spanish baby, right? So Amarok came to us from South America. That's another story all on its own. But anyway, they fell in love. And now uh, I'm sure, I don't know if you remember, but she came up to the fence line. She's interested. Her eyes are bright. She's happy. So it can be a really happy thing when they get together. But imagine if we were not so careful how terrible that could be. So yeah, right. And I think that, you know, the stakes are so much higher, right, for you guys. And I think that I have so much respect for y'all as an organization for so many freaking reasons. But one of those really being that you recognize the individual animal and their preferences, right? And I think with wolves, you have less wiggle room, right? Like domesticated dogs, we push them a lot. We ask a lot of them, we get away with a lot, but with wolves, we don't have the luxury because the stakes are so high. So can you explain just a little bit like the, the introductory process? So obviously it's kind of hard because, you know, people aren't there to see, but I think that you have a really beautiful um, setup, making sure that there's no room for error when you're kind of getting a sense for like, can these wolves like each other and be together forever? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. It's a common question at the center. So just the logistics of how, right? So I have never been there for a wolf pairing, actually, unfortunately, someday I will, but I can tell you, this is what people tell me how it goes. So the first thing we do is we take one of the wolves and we kind of walk it or walk he or she around the other enclosure, right? Now, one of the wolves, Makui and Kikoa, we tried to set them up. Kikoa was inside the enclosure. They walked Makui around the enclosure and uh, I'm getting tongue-tied. Kikoa, Kikoa said, no, I don't want that lady. Get her away from me. Teeth, arr, heckles, all that, right? So we said, no, we didn't go any further. So that ended up being initially sad, but then we took Makui and we walked her around Kenai's enclosure. And Kenai was like, oh, who's that hot mama? Who is that over there? So then we move to the next step, right? And what I really mean by, oh, who is that hot mama, right? Is positive body language. So body language between dogs and wolves is very similar. It's a lot more complex with wolves. Uh, wagging tail can mean a lot of different things. I'm sure it's the same with dogs, but in any case, um, Kenai with his body language said, I want that wolf. 
right? So very slowly, we began to bring them closer and closer together. Eventually, if we think things are going good, we have what we call a matchmaking enclosure. So that's um, one enclosure separated by a corridor uh, and then the other enclosure on the other side. So we can close that corridor and allow those animals to spend time around each other, hearing each other, talking to each other, smelling each other um, without being able to get at each other. When we finally feel that it is safe for both the animals, um, we will bring them together. With Kenai Makui, with that little story I just told, we have a really great video on our YouTube. It's called Wolf Tango. Um, it, I just have to admit to you, I just watched it a couple months ago. It is so adorable. Uh, they played for like hours together. Yeah. So that's a really happy example. Oh my God. Okay. Well, I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes so people oh, can watch that adorableness. But I think that, you know, I think it's just important to highlight, right? Because obviously wolves and domesticated dogs are very different, but like, you know, so much of integrating domestic dogs takes a lot of like that same framework, right? Taking it slow, listening to the animal. What are they telling us? If they're uncomfortable, we take the pressure off, right? It's not about forcing, you know, wolves or dogs to do anything. It's just about trying to set it up so that everyone can be successful and there can be, you yeah. know, the least stress to everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Becca, Becca, so do you want to speak a little bit to what your tasks are at the, the center? Um, when we were there, everyone, um, we did a, a feeding tour, right? So she had her, her rubber gloves on and the raw meat and she was feeding all the animals. It was amazing. I loved it so much. <laughs> so do you want to just speak more like, like what your day-to-day -day tasks look like there? Yeah. You mean me personally? Or? Yeah. 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 So, you know, everything that you see there is, is done by us. Um, so, you know, the gardening, the landscaping, the mucking, uh, you know, everything, right? So my day usually starts out with some physical labor, um, especially when I first started before I came, became more valuable in other ways, right? Um, so then we do some physical labor and then pretty quick the interactions get started. And that is my absolute favorite part of the job. It is incredible doing those interactions. Um, people come in and they expect one thing. Uh, and it, the interaction is absolutely not what they expected. I mean, I see grown men cry like once a week. I'm not even exaggerating. Yeah, because it is such a beautiful and magical, I would even say spiritual experience for a lot of people. Really, it really yeah. is, right? You gotta like, do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you gotta do it. So uh, we do the interactions and then I usually give some sort of, of tour, uh, you know, very similar to the one that you took and then probably more physical labor and then probably more interactions and more physical labor. And then at the end of the day, I, I get to, usually I get to feed them. And, and sometimes during the day, depending on what's going on, you know, I'll, I'll make their food. You remember those white buckets that we carry around during the feeding yes. tours? So we, you know, prep all that, give them their medicine, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what my day-to-day -day usually looks like. Oh my God. That is awesome. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about um, why y'all exist, right? Because I think that um, I, that's something that really opened my eyes, right? Like, um, I, I didn't know a lot about like the need for housing wolves and not even just housing wolves, but like educating the public, like you guys do so much more, but can you speak a little bit to why the center exists? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that begins with how the center got started, right? So a little less than 30 years ago, Darlene, our founder, an amazing woman, she uh, put up a sign and I don't, may not have all these numbers correct, but this is the general story, right? So about 30 years ago, she put up a sign that said wolf dog rescue. 
right? <laughs> and she has also told me, don't use the word rescue unless you seriously mean it. Because within like a week, she had like a dozen animals, right? Yes, because people do not understand wolves, especially not wolf dogs. Um, so that's how the, the center got started. Uh, she just, you know, took it from there. Uh, she found this need and her passion, and it was just kind of a perfect storm that created the center. And we've been, you know, crawling uphill on our hands and knees, you know, ever since. So that's how the center got started. But, and you can stop me if this is a little bit too much information, but why is there a need for a center in the first place? So I heard you mention um, that we house our wolves. We do house our wolves, but I want to clarify a little bit there. So none of our wolves ever had the chance to be out in the wild, right? So Makui, for example, she didn't, I don't, she, it's not like she was found in the wild with a broken leg and we took her, right? That is not how the center works. Because we do those interactions, we try and stay away from rescues uh, because we can't have animals that we can't depend on, right? That, that may have been abused or, or something like that. Now we do have some rescues, um, that's just not the purpose of the center. Right. Now there are two wolves that were born in the wild. Um, their names are Dakota and Diego. There are our Mexican gray wolves. Now those guys were born in the wild. The purpose of us having them is conservation, not socialization, right? So for most of the other wolves and some of the other coyotes, the purpose of, of having those wolves is for socialization, for the ambassador programs, for those interactions to teach people. The Mexican gray wolves are there because there's um, less than 150 of them out in the wild, right? So that's a captive breeding program that we can participate in because we're AZA certified. That's called, called the Species Survival Plan for, for those up on, on the AZA programs. But the, the larger question is, is what happened to wolves? I think maybe that's what you're really getting at, yeah, right? So sure. what happened to wolves, um, and I don't mean to, to be the humans are bad person, you know, but this is but what happened. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah. So when Europeans got here, they grew up on, you know, all those stories um, that we still tell our kids today. So that's stories like Little Red Riding Hood, The Boy Who Cried Wolf, The Three Little Pigs, that list goes on and on and on, right? They also grew up with the plague in their history. So in the 1300s, there was a, a really bad pandemic going around called the Black Plague, right? And during the Black Plague, so many people died that they literally could not bury their dead. So they had these, they had to have these mass open graves outside the city walls and your predators and your scavengers, especially your predators came down and said, hey, free buffet, right? Uh, it's very difficult to be a wild animal. Um, they're gonna take any opportunity that they can, obviously, but Europeans saw this and, and sometimes saw a wolf with a leg in their mouth or something like that. And they said, oh, they're people eaters. So now we have this fear already. Europeans get here and they saw this huge, vast land. And they said, this land is infinite, infinite, right? And wolf populations today are sort of a really tragic example of that human hubris, because obviously the land is not infinite. So I think the first reason that we're there is to teach people about wolves, to teach people that they are not the monsters that Europeans thought they were and that people still think that they are today. So Europeans might have grown up on those Germanic fairy tales we just listed, but we're still growing up on our own versions of those. So we, you and I, I heard those stories as a kid, right? But I also have seen movies like The Grey, The Revenant, uh, even Red Dead Redemption 2, which I started playing, super fun. But 
none of them portray wolves in a happy light or a realistic light. I challenge you to find one example of any media, you know, Hollywood, big media that portrays wolves in a, in a realistic way. It's extremely uncommon. So now we are growing up with these very well. They've been villainized for so long. And like, you know, just for everyone listening, you know, obviously everyone who's been listening to the podcast knows that I'm a huge pit bull advocate. And like, there's just the parallel, but like the stakes are just so much higher and the consequences to wolves are just so much higher, but the parallels are exactly the same, right? There's been this dialogue of wolves being monsters and they can't be trusted. And that has been so detrimental to their populations and not just the wolf populations, but the ecosystems at large that they don't exist in anymore. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I love pit bulls. I have to say they're the sweetest babies ever. I cannot imagine. And that's how I feel about the wolves too. I, I can definitely see the parallels between our work as well. Yeah, definitely. Right. Okay. So, um, can you kind of just give us an update as like present day, like as far as wolf populations in the U S are dramatically different from what they were pre European settlers, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So before European settlers, conservative estimates estimate that there were about 450,000 wolves, right? But then up into the mid-1960s even, the government was putting out these predator control programs, which basically meant incentivized extermination through our government. That's how a lot of our government agencies got started, um, is these predator control programs. So from the time Europeans got here up until 1960s, 1970s, we were just destroying their populations. So by the mid-1900s, there was only 300 to 500 left in the lower 48 states. Yeah. Oh my God, that is startling. Yeah, a half a million to 300. Oh my God. I mean, those numbers speak for themselves. It's incredible. Mm. And when I say those numbers on the tours, people have your reaction. <gasps> oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Like it's not common knowledge how few wolves there are left. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point we're fighting for their species. It's not like I'm a wolf lover. Oh, wolves are so cute. No, this is an ecological scientific giant issue that we're trying to deal with here. And it's part of a larger issue, which is that of the earth and all of that. So, right. And something that um, I really loved learning about in the tour is um, the Yellowstone project, right? The, the oh, yeah. wolves being reintroduced there. And like, um, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, these numbers just by heart at this point, but like the increase in species and populations in Yellowstone because of the wolves being present was just a remarkable feat and like spotlighting how essential they are. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I say on my tours, I love to tell the story of Yellowstone because it's a happy one and we don't have that many happy stories in, in wolf conservation. Now I would like to qualify the Yellowstone story a little bit. Um, it's not only because of wolves. Now wolves uh, we removed wolves out of Yellowstone National Park in about 1920s. It took until 1995 and 96 to reintroduce. So for those of you that, that don't know this story, uh, here's what happened. So we eliminated all the wolves, right? Uh, and the ecosystem went completely out of balance. Because there were no more wolves, there was nothing to keep the elk and deer populations in check. So they became really unbalanced. Those herds became very unhealthy. They started spreading diseases and eating up all the vegetation. So um, 
because there was nothing chasing the, the elk, they had to stay in the valleys. So they stopped going up into the mountains. So it's kind of, kind of funny, but it was very serious health issue for them. They got fat because they were sitting in those valleys eating, yeah, eating the vegetation. So not only did we lose those veg that vegetation, uh, it, it was a trophic cascade, right? So um, adults have probably heard that term for, for those of you that have never heard that term. Um, what it means is we took out the top predator and those negative effects cascaded down the trophic levels, right? So because we took out the wolves, the deer and elk population suffered, they ate up all the vegetation um, and then the beavers went away. So beavers are ecosystem engineers. They are super important to have around. They left because they couldn't live there anymore. So between the beavers and the wolves, ecological disaster. So that is the reason why they reintroduced in 1995 and 96. And since we reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone National Park, over 320 plant and animal species have returned on their own to Yellowstone National Park. Now, of course, that's a combination uh, of factors, but wolves are way up on that list, right? So that story illustrates that wolves are an essential part of our ecosystems and that humans can benefit from wolves, not just in our ecosystems, but also that is incredibly lucrative for Yellowstone National Park, millions of dollars a year, right? So I don't know if you, I, I know that you heard Rachel, but for those of you listening, if you haven't heard, uh, Colorado just got wolves reintroduced into the Western slope of Colorado. Thank you Woo! so much for voting yes on uh, Prop 114. Woohoo, we did it. So we're gonna have paws on the ground by 2023. Uh, I'm so excited about that. First of all, cause I love wolves and they should be where they're supposed to be, right? Uh, but also that is gonna help those uh, communities out there in, in the Western slope. I mean, I can tell you, Moving from Texas to Colorado, one of the biggest culture shocks was the winter time and how slow things get. And some of those communities out in the Western Slope, they barely survive. So if we can bring that tourist money into the Western Slope, that's going to benefit us in a different way. Oh my God. Right. Well, and like just seeing like our, our deer and our elk populations, right? Like making sure that those are managed because I know that there's a lot of disease in our populations of that. Like there's just so many positive ripple effects we're going to see from seeing wolves re-released. Oh my God. Amazing. Okay. So, um, okay. So I want to talk about the difference between wolves and dogs. And obviously this is a very loaded topic, so we're not gonna be able to talk about all of it, but you proposed a very interesting like topic, right? Is how long would it take for wolves to be domesticated and then vice versa, right? Like how long would it take for like the domesticated dog to go back and revert to like what it would take to be like a wild predator again? So, you know, I, I know that that's a loaded topic, so I, I, but I want to hear from you, right? Like obviously there's some huge differences between wolves and domesticated dogs that we can kind of highlight, but I think we can even go broader than that too. Yeah. So on that subject, I have something pretty interesting. Uh, have you ever heard of the pariah dogs? Yes. In, yes. In India. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, they've done a lot of research on these, on these Indian street dogs. So what the, for those of you that don't know what it is, uh, India has this population of basically feral dogs that live on the streets, um, with beside humans, but not with them. So that's sort of a very unique perspective to look at. So a lot of the studies, uh, coming out of India on these pariah dogs have to do with their reproduction because they're trying to 
stop them from reproducing and having them all over their streets, right? Uh, but they also have done quite a few behavioral studies. So I have some notes here. I want I, This is a very interesting. <clears throat> so they're in West Bengal in India, and they've been studying them for decades. So here are some differences between these feral dogs and domestic dogs. So I know that's a little bit different perspective than you asked me for directly, but I think it's valuable. So first of all, uh, neighboring dog, I'm sorry, this is the difference between these street dogs and wolves, not between these pariah dogs and domestic dogs. Okay, so the difference between these pariah dogs and wolves, first of all, when wolf packs start bumping up against each other, they're gonna go for blood. This is my territory, stay out of it. These street dogs, they can, their territories can overlap amicably without killing each other, right? So that's number one. Uh, also, so in wolf packs, there's one female, the alpha, that breeds. Sometimes if the wolf packs are large enough, other wolves in the pack will breed. But with these pariah dogs, these females will copulate with many, 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 basically indiscriminatory, right? So what that's really getting at is that they're, they're, social and familial bonds are so much less strong than with wolves. When we take Makui out, Kenai is like, where's my lady? Give her back, right? But when you take one dog out of the house, the other dog doesn't have like a panic attack, right? Mm -hmm. So their, their bonds are a lot less strong um, and they breed differently. Also get that. So those are the major differences. Um, one interesting thing as well, and you, you probably know more about this than I do. So domestic dogs, as I understand, go through heat uh, about once every seven months. Right. Yep. Is, is that about right? Yeah, so dogs there's some breed variation, but generally speaking, yes. Yeah. Okay. So wolves go through the breeding season once a year, which is right now about January to March and their personalities change quite a bit. That's a different and very interesting subject. These pariah dogs, they're, they're, having a heat cycle about once a year. Interesting. So that's pretty, that's, that is the fact that made me think how many generations does it take a dog to become a wolf again? You know, because through a few generations, we're already seeing reproductive differences between a dog, a domestic dog and a pariah dog moving towards the great, the wolf, right? Very interesting. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And like, I think that that's something that at large is really fascinating for me because like in the US we don't observe that like we don't yeah. see feral populations all we observe is really domestic populations right and there's so many differences in that right and like and a lot of those are at the fault of people and right like the limitations we've given them like in the human world they don't get to like operate normally like a like a feral population would right but it's really fascinating right when we look at like the domestication of you know, what was the wolf and, you know, in other places, the wild dog or whatever, um, and, and where we are now and like that timeline. So um, I want to hear a little bit about wolf behavior. So something that I found so fascinating on the tour was, um, okay, so tell me what is the terminology again, like when they hit social maturity and they start to be afraid of things? Yeah, it's called neophobia. Neophobia. So yeah. it's really interesting because I, I see this, it's obviously not the same degree, but like, this is something that I observe in my, my work all of the time is that the dog hits social maturity and their behaviors start to change. And I usually describe it as like, you know, it's not rainbows and puppies anymore. Like the, the dog is perceiving the world more serious, but in wolves, they're starting to become more and more afraid of things. So I want to just highlight why 
having a wolf dog or a wolf hybrid as a pet is just a terrible idea um, because that happens, right? They become really afraid of things. And a wolf is not supposed to live in modern society, right? In an apartment, right? Like that's not, that's, it's very inhumane to do that. So do you want to speak just a little bit to that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a question I get multiple times a week. So I told you I, I work in the office sometimes. That means what that really means is that I'm sort of on the front lines between the public and the wall center, <laughs> right? So I get all the questions and a question all the time is, do you have wolf dogs? Can I buy a wolf dog? Where can I get a wolf dog? How much does a wolf dog puppy cost, right? And that sort of breaks my heart because as much as I get that question, twice as much, I get the question, can you take our wolf dog? Because I'm going to have to shoot it. I'm going to have to put it down, right? So this is, I'm very passionate about this subject. I love wolves. I love dogs. Putting them together doesn't always work, right? So there are over 250,000 wolf dogs born and bred in this country every year to sell to the public. Over 80% of those will not make it to their third birthday. So that's for a lot of reasons. First of all, wolves and wolf dogs are extremely expensive. You have to build them those big enclosures. Um, by the way, those enclosures that you saw just to renovate, $15,000. So for those of you that haven't been to the Wolf Center, there are simple posts um, with wire fencing going around. It is a pain in the you know what to dig. I've done it a couple of times, post hole digging. They go three feet in, three feet, uh, three feet down, three feet in. Most people don't want to do that for a pet. They want to keep it in their house and put it in the bathtub or in the bathroom when they've used the carpet. You know what I mean? You can't do that with a wolf dog. Um, so they're very expensive. You have to feed them an all raw meat diet. You have to have the vet come to you because you cannot take a wolf dog to a vet. Uh, they're also extremely high maintenance. So when you get a wolf dog, or if I should say, if you get a wolf dog, if you decide to get a wolf dog for the first two years, they do sort of act like dogs. They sort of fool people. And it's the same with, with wolves as well. For the first two years, they're a puppy. They're puppies, right? After that two-year mark, their personalities can seriously change. They can develop very strange quirks. Um, for example, one of our wolves at the center, we rescued her from a backyard breeder in Texas. I hate to say that because I'm from Texas, but it's true. <laughs> a backyard breeder from Texas. Her name was Zoltana. So she uh, was not bred to be an ambassador wolf. Right. So the wolves that we have there, um, most of the wolves were bred to do these interactions. That was not the case with Zoltana. So that's Zoltana was sort of a, a more wolfy wolf. Right. Now, Zoltana was a very sweet girl. If you went in there, she would love on you. She'd scent rub on you. Uh, she'd give you kisses as long as you had your ugly human hands hidden. Right. So you had to go in that enclosure with your hands behind your back, tucked into your jacket or in your pockets, because if you tried to pet Zoltana, she'd give you a dirty look and walk away. You're never going to talk to Zoltana again. As I understand, I don't think she had that quirk until after that two-year mark. So imagine you, and by the way, I forgot to mention this, we rescued her from a backyard breeder in Texas who was almost certainly going to breed her with a dog to make wolf dogs to sell to the public. Right? So imagine if all of her offspring carried on that, that weird quirk. So then you couldn't even pet your pet. Right, so that is just one example of how their personalities can change. Another example is Orenda. So Orenda was our ambassador wolf, but at that two year mark, she decided she didn't wanna do it anymore. 
So she used to really enjoy getting on the, the harness and leashes and coming out of her enclosure and meeting new people. But after that two year mark, she was terrified. So we don't make our animals do anything they, they don't wanna do. And quite frankly, we couldn't make any of them do anything they don't wanna do, especially not Arenda. Um, so that was the end of that. Yeah, right. And I think that it's just really important, right? Because so much of my work as a dog trainer is trying to find a balance between meeting the dog's needs and the human's needs. And like with a wolf, they're never going to satiate what you want as a pet. That is not what, who they are. That's not who they should be ever. Um, so I think it's just really important to highlight for everyone listening, right? That like a wolf dog is always a bad idea, even if there's mixed genetics, right? Like you genetics never lie. We can't breed that out, right? Like it's going to take a lot of generations to even get to a point where the, the wolf could be quote unquote, a pet dog. Right. And yeah. like, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate. And I think just as you know, the general public, it's important that we all continue to educate that like wolf dogs are never a good idea. Stop supporting these breeders because if they don't yeah. have demand, they're going to stop breeding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about the alpha and the misuse of the terminology, right? So this is something that I was just so freaking delighted to hear you talk about on the wolf tour, because like so much of my career as a dog trainer is like convincing people that like, they don't need to be the alpha to their wolf, uh, to their dogs, right? Because domesticated dogs are not wolves. And so do you want to speak a little bit to like, in a wild setting, like how an alpha wolf would carry themselves um, and then kind of like break it down to like where we are and like the misconceptions, what people think alpha actually means. Yeah, so what an alpha really, really means is to be the mom and dad. That is what an alpha is, that is the definition. That does not mean necessarily that they are the most, I don't know, aggressive or the largest or whatever. Now, by definition, they are the most dominant, right? But that doesn't mean that they're, I don't know, constantly bullying all the other wolves out. So along my tours, I ask people all the time, you know, when you think of a wolf, I'm sorry, when you think of an alpha, what do you think of? And I want, if you're listening right now, I want you to really think about what do you think an alpha is in dogs and in wolves. And I can... <laughs> The reason that I ask it that way is because on three separate occasions, I have been interrupted for someone to tell me, the person who works at the Wolf Sanctuary, uh, don't you mean male, male alpha? Females can't be alphas, don't you know? No, that's not true. Becca, you're wrong. They're always male. And it's like, how do you fight that kind of, how do you fight that? So that's why I ask those questions like that. And our group was small when you came and took the tour, but I can guarantee you once, probably once a day when we're busier, someone says male, right? And that's because in our daily lives, we've been, when we say alpha, we don't usually mean a wolf or a dog. We're usually literally talking about a person, right? And that's what it colloquial me colloquially means, but it, that's not what it really means. By the way, this is my dog, Theodore. Hi, Theodore. How you doing there, handsome? He's a Pyrenees, Australian Shepherd mix. I'm back with you. And I wanted to comment one more uh, about one more thing about the difference between wolves and dogs. 
Um, so one perspective is the pariah dogs. The other perspective is me working with captive wolves, right? So of course, these wolves have been bred to be ambassador animals. So they're not exactly wild, wild. But one of the things that struck me the most was how they make their own decisions. So if you tell a dog, hey, give me that back, that's mine. The dog is gonna say, okay, you can have it, whatever, you know, usually, right? right. A wolf is gonna say, uh, no, this is mine. I have it in my mouth and I'll fight you for it, you know, or whatever. They don't, they don't care what we have to tell them. They're gonna make their own decisions for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and like, you know, I, I worked with a wolf hybrid early in my career well-meaning person just, you know, was misguided. Um, and I got called in because the dog was resource guarding, like very heavily, you know, mm -hmm. and it was one of those things that I got called in to quote unquote fix. Mm -hmm. And I had to be really real with the owner, like, oh, we don't fix this. This is part of the package, right? You yeah. don't bring a wolf dog into your life and expect them just to give up raw bones, right? That's not the way that it works, right? So I think that the intensity of behaviors that are undesirable mm -hmm. from human perspective are just going to be blown out of proportion if you are adding wolf genetics into that dog, right? You got it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that is just part of the package. Right. So I think that, you know, there's, there's just so many differences. And I think really to highlight that, like a wolf is never going to be a livable, easy creature with you. Right. Like, that's Especially why we have dogs. Now, if you're considering rescuing a wolf dog, having the proper facilities, doing your own research, I say, yeah, go for it. But if you're a person thinking, I want to have cool Instagram photos, let's not kill this animal for your Instagram post, right? Oh and I know all of the beautiful people listening are just as like furious as we yeah. are with like, you know, people like wanting to live with wolf dogs. But yeah, I think that that's just really important that like a wolf is never going to be a pet, right? Like that's just yeah. not the way that it works. So, okay. Yeah. So I want to kind of circle back to like the pervasive idea of like being the alpha and like why it is so centric to like, males and bullying and being kind of a royal dick right and like so okay so in um in like a, a wild wolf pack alphas would be parents right so they're not going to be bullying unnecessarily they're not going to be you know like seeking out trouble for no reason right they're going to be making sure that one obviously mating is taking place because that is essential to their survival but making sure that the whole pack the whole family structure is taken care of is that accurate Absolutely. Yeah. So it's really hard to nail down like alphas do this, betas do this, right? Because it's almost like asking humans what they do for a living. You know what I mean? Because each family is so different. It's very hard to generalize. So I can give you a couple of generalizations about what alphas really are. Uh, they're the mom and dad. They eat first. Um, they control who breeds. So usually it is only that two alphas and that's to prevent inbreeding, of course, but sometimes they will allow um, other members of their pack to breed. Uh, everybody takes care of all the pups. Uh, the alpha wolves will start the hunt and sort of guide the hunt, but they're not always the ones doing the killing. Uh, usually actually it's the, the younger wolves with the better teeth, um, more brazen attitudes maybe to, to go do that the kill. Yeah. And the, the alpha wolves can also call off the hunt. So they do have some roles, but they're also so general that you can't say like the mom does the dishes and the dad goes to work. You know, it's yeah. not really like that. If you get my metaphor there. 
Yes. Oh my God. I'm, I'm totally with you. And I think everyone listening is probably really understanding that too, you know, and I think that there's just this really misguided approach that's just been perpetuated by, you know, TV personality, the dog whisperer. You can say oh my it. God. that guy, oh my God. he's terrible. Okay. Oh. And like, just as a really random side note, and I want to get back to like all the amazing work you guys are doing at the center. There is a new Netflix series that's going to showcase an alpha trainer. And it's just like, here we are again, another, this perpetuated stereotype of masculine figures, quote unquote, dominating dogs. And it's just, you know, animal welfare always suffers. It always does. And it's just crazy that here we are in 2021 and we're still fighting for, you know, the ethical treatment of dogs and not misguided information. And like, you know, just to highlight the differences we talked about between wolves and domesticated dogs, like why people still think that that's an appropriate way to handle domesticated dogs. I really just will never understand. Like why, why? Okay. So yeah, that's a big question. I don't know. Oh my God. Okay. I'm not sure why. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I think that I think it's because there's a lot of male power and control in like the industry. So it's really easy just to perpetuate mm. that, right? Like there's mm-hmm. not the, not always the females at the top who are maybe a little bit more rational about like what we're going to televise to the, to the general public. Yeah. Right? But that's just, that's just my take. Everyone listening already knows my take on that, but I, mean, um, I probably agree with that. I haven't thought too much about it, but I would agree. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I want to talk about how we can get listeners involved in the preservation and reintroduction of wolves in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. So the reintroduction of wolves into the United States uh, is not really going as fast as it, of course, in my opinion, as it could be, but the reintroduction of wolves in Colorado is, is sort of what I deal with on a, on a daily basis. So first of all, get yourself educated about wolves. You know, if you like wolves or if you love wolves, whatever, there are facts out there and they're easy to find. Uh, Come to our wolf center, support sanctuaries like that. Also, uh, just recently, when we were pretty sure that we were going to get wolves reintroduced, the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center started this fund called the Wolf Coexistence Fund. So uh, that is a great resource. If you want to get involved, you know the money is going to a good place. Um, through an AZA certified facility that takes care of their animals, that fund will provide revenue for education. That is going to be the number one thing. And I don't know how the logistics of that is going to work out, but we're going to talk to as many people as we can about wolves, especially out on the Western slope. So first is education, telling people how to live harmoniously with wolves. For example, um, non-lethal management techniques putting a fence around your cows, whatever it may be. Uh, Education is first for that fund. Also research materials. So radio collars, telemetry materials. That stuff is extremely expensive, especially with wolves getting delisted from the endangered species list in 2020. Just recently, they've lost a lot of funding. So this is one of the best ways that you can help wild wolves out there is by donating to our fund. Um, Other than that, there are always things going around. Um, for example, right now there's a couple of bills, you know, acting against wolves. I'd be happy to detail those for you, but basically go to our website, wolfeducation.org, click on newsletter, and that'll keep you updated. So, you know, if I tell you a bunch of bills right now, it's going to get outdated because those bills are going to pass or not. So basically go to search, save the wolves 
in Colorado, you know, and do what they tell you to. Right now, the Wolf Coexistence Fund is really important. Also, like I mentioned, wolves were delisted off of the endangered species list. If you feel that wolves are not recovered and they still need our, our funding and that they should not be legally able to be hunted and trapped, you can get with the Center for Biological Diversity right now. So those are probably the two most important things that I can tell you. Um, also, for everyone listening, go talk about this podcast. Go tell people that you, you listen to a podcast with a wolf person and you fell in love with wolves. That's what I'm hoping secretly. Um, and tell everybody how cool they are and that they're not monsters and that they don't eat people. Tell people that. Yeah. Oh right. And I think that it's so important because like we want to believe that like these misconceptions and myths about wolves, like the modern person doesn't believe them, but I don't think it's even conscious. I think it's just subconscious. Yeah. We've just been it's, conditioned over our entire lives, our parents' entire lives to really yeah. be afraid of wolves and yeah. nothing could be further from the truth. We can all benefit. Yeah. We can all live in a healthier world if wolves are the wolf, you know, populations continue to grow. And I think, you know, I want to just highlight something because I think that you know, the, the cattle industry, right? Like that's a, a big reason why they don't want wolves back because that, you know, wolves could kill livestock that could cost money. And I think we have to help people understand that there's so much more at stake than one cow dying. Right. Yeah. Like, so let me ask you a question. Yeah. And I, people listening, I want you to think about this as well. So hypothetical situation, let's say that you, Rachel, you are a rancher and you have a thousand cows out there where there are also wolves. How many of those cows do you think will get taken out by a wolf? One, yeah. two. Less than one. Right, those like are what the statistics real are. One cow. Yes, so depredation, that's what that's called. It does happen, but it is not to the extent that, that some people perceive. And in fact, most ranchers that I talk to personally are for wolf reintroduction because they are out there on the plains, seeing the negative effects of not having wolves, diseases, lack of biodiversity, you know? So like I mentioned before, Europeans got here and they thought this place was infinite, but now we're starting to realize that it's not infinite. And that's part of the, the major, how do I say this? That's a, a secondary purpose of the Wolf Center is to shift this paradigm of how every America in the world is, is thinking about the environment and shift it from we are the lords of this to we are a part of the ecosystem and we need to start taking care of it or we are going to die. Oh my God. And it's, it's so freaking true. Right. And I think that, you know, we have to be really cognizant of like the, the power, the, the impact that we can have on our ah. ecosystem at large by using our voices and making them heard and yes. using our resources, right. To donate to where they need to go. Like we can be the change. And, you know, I think that in Colorado, right. Like I've, I'm native, I've been here my whole life and I have seen, right. Like I have seen the negative impacts of the landscape, right. When, you know, deer populations and elk populations are overgrazing. Like there's just, there's so much at stake here and we have a really amazing chance right now to be the change so that our future generations don't have to advocate, yeah. to, you know, the umpteenth degree because everyone will understand how essential wolves are. And I really hope to, you know, live to see the day when 
wolves are not an endangered species, that wolf numbers are yeah. high. They're where they should be. Yeah. And I know that that's how you feel. Your passion oh, is yeah. contagious, my friend. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that so much. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Okay. So for everyone listening, if you live in Colorado, go to Divide and go to the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center. Come see me. Oh my God. And hopefully you can meet Becca in real life and you can get one of her kick-ass tours. Please come see um, me. Yes. And you know, I want to just highlight just one little thing before we wrap it up. I have so much respect for um, how you care for the, the, the animals there, the enrichment that you build in, the nutrition, meeting their needs, meeting where they are. Like that is exactly what all of my listeners are doing for their domesticated dogs. And it's really cool to see you guys just going above and beyond for the wolves and the wolves oh, and the you. foxes and the coyote in your care. So would you agree that it's obvious when you, when you look at those animals that they're well taken care of and intelligent? My God, it's, it's incredible. So I want to just highlight something. So Zoe, is that her name? The 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 red box that is actually black. Okay. So guys, I went to the, the center like very soon after she had gotten there. So do you want to just tell her backstory just really quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know exactly where she came from. Um, She was not abused or anything like that, but she was not living her best life. As I understand, well, I don't want to say what I think she was eating because I don't know, but she was not eating her proper diet. She was not getting the enrichment. So her family was bred for fur farm fur, but she was rescued by this other person who had no ill intentions. But anyway, when she first came to the center, she was you know, she didn't want to talk to us. She, her jaws were not strong enough to chew raw bones or meat. Um, she didn't want to interact with people but of the public. And now, I mean, you saw for yourself what her behavior is. She gets the zoomies. It's so cute. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So that first time we went, she was like doing like the stress pacing. Yeah. Right? Like stress pacing mm-hmm. and vocalizing. Like it was yeah. very clear, right? It must've been then, like the first oh day. Oh my God. The second time we went, you were actually standing in there with her and she was like eating from your hand and there's all these toys. You built this ramp for her. Like, I mean, it was remarkable the difference and just like the behaviors that I was observing. And like, I would argue that she is happy and content, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, she's a sweet girl. Oh my God. Red, our other red fox is like, give me the food right now. Give it to me right now. <laughs> and Zoe is kind of like, oh, can I have some food? Do you have any? You know, she's such oh. a sweet little girl. Yeah. Yeah. Her personality has oh completely changed. And that's because we all go in there on our lunch break and sit there with her, you know? Right. And it's like, you know, that bond, right. That mutual understanding, that trust, like that is what I preach day in and day out for my clients and their domesticated dogs. And like, you're just doing that on a different level, right. You know, and and you're not expecting things out of the animals that they're not capable of. You are meeting them exactly where they are. Right. And building that trust slowly. And it's, it's pretty remarkable. Like I honestly was just delighted. I kept telling my mom, like, I can't believe how happy this fox is. I text my husband. I'm like, Oh my God, you wouldn't believe it. So he's so happy now, you know, because I I love that. I think it's human. We see an animal in distress and it breaks our freaking hearts. Right. So yeah, I mean, it should, it really should. So, okay. So um, yes, for everyone listening, you should definitely go and visit. So um, do you want to just recap how the listeners can connect with the center? So what's the website again? Yeah, so our website is wolfeducation.org. You can subscribe to our newsletter. That's a really great way to stay active on things that, that happen with wolf conservation. 
Um, we have some social media as well. If you just search Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center on any social media, you'll get to us. Our YouTube channel is especially good. So that Wolf Tango, that's a really good video. Another really good video is uh, Amrock's First Snow. Yeah, because he had never seen snow before. Yeah, so you got to go to our YouTube channel for sure. Instagram, Facebook. I don't think we have a Twitter, but yeah. Yeah, all the major social networks. Oh my God, Becca Sue, you are a beautiful human being. It was a total delight to connect with you tonight. And I know that my listeners are just going to feel so awesome about this episode. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so if you go to our website, I'm sure there's a contact us. Please feel free to contact us with any questions, whether you're a six-year-old wanting to know how long wolves sleep, or if you're a person with a wolf dog that, that might need some help figuring out how to take care of that animal, or if you just have questions, call me to tell you how much, call me to tell me how much you love wolves, whatever it is. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing all the work that you do. You know, I kind of picked up wolves and ran with it, but I'm so thankful to have other people taking care of our other animals as well. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to learn more about how you can connect with me for training, you can go to my website, agfdogtraining.com. If you'd like more training inspiration and insight, you can follow me on Instagram at a good feeling underscore NCO. If you'd like to become a member and support the podcast, please check us out on Patreon. You can check us out at patreon.com slash disorderly dogs. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss out on any future episodes and if you really like this podcast and you want to go above and beyond for me you could leave a five-star review over on apple podcast to help more like-minded individuals find us